This week on the Backtable Podcast. Bringing peritoneal access to your uh, practice helps open up all the avenues of dialysis access care that you can provide to your renal failure patients and community. Because let's say you were doing hemocatheter for the patient. Talk to them about PD at that time at your initial discussion and vice versa. Talk to them about hemo options if PD goes wrong while you're placing the PD catheter so that you complete the loop of whatever access maintenance you have to do with the patient. And so this, I think, kind of covers 360 degrees of the complete dialysis access care for patients on dialysis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See RadPad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. And my guest today is Dr. Satyaki Banerjee, private practice interventional nephrologist based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Our topic today is peritoneal dialysis catheters. Dr. Banerjee, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Aparna, for introducing me. So, uh, Dr. Banerjee, could you please tell me a little bit more about your practice setting? Absolutely. So I started my interventional vascular access center in an office-based lab setting about eight years ago with the practice Renal Medicine Associates. And uh, I started doing PD catheters even before that, but this was my first venture into the office-based lab environment, doing it in an outpatient setting. And uh, I found that was a very useful, and it's ever since then, it's been growing exponentially. We've done about 750 PD catheters so far, and all using a minimally invasive fluoroscopic modified Seldinger. Sorry for too many words, but it's essentially <laughs> just a simple wire technique of introducing your PD catheter and getting the patient started on peritoneal home dialysis. So what are some of the indications for the placement of peritoneal dialysis catheters? Great question. So when our patients are going to get started on dialysis, if they're GFR from any of the causes of renal failure, most commonly being hypertension or diabetes or glomerulonephritis, and their GFR is less than 15 it's an indication to start dialysis of some kind. And uh, depending on their symptoms of uremia, volume overload, and other factors of how urgently they need to start on dialysis. That's when the discussion happens between the nephrologist and the patient about what form of dialysis, whether they're going towards hemodialysis or peritoneal dialysis. Peritoneal dialysis was invented between the 60s and 70s, started growing more. It wasn't so popular in the 90s, 80s, but then now recently it has grown exponentially because everyone wants to do it at home and the outcomes of when they're starting dialysis is really good when they start with peritoneal dialysis because their residual kidney function is still preserved 
they get an easy transition to transplant without ever going through hemodialysis with catheters or fistulas. But I always discuss with my patients and give them awareness of all the options that are available. And most of the healthier compliant patients with home support, family support, they choose peritoneal dialysis to start with. And that's when they get in touch with either an interventional person or a surgeon and the home training program when they undergo the training process and everything. So this is empowering patients and getting them in charge of their own health rather than going to a dialysis unit. Absolutely. Are there any contraindications for patients to start peritoneal dialysis? Like what would push somebody more towards hemodialysis? If um, they have no family support or the education level is uh, not quite compatible to where they can do this at home, hooking up the catheter to the machine at night, it has to be a semi-clean environment where, you know, you prevent infection risk and all. The understanding of the whole dialysis process. So they have to be somewhat active and educated about this process to get trained about it. And that's a process that the home program indulges with the patient, goes and screens the patient and makes sure that they're a good candidate for it. And then after that, uh, if they are a good candidate, then the next step is how is the anatomy of that abdominal wall and the insides. So if they've had multiple, um, let's say, open surgery laparotomies, previous kidney transplant, if they've had... Um, a gunshot wound to the abdomen, anything that involves significant scarring, that would be the only way one can rule out a patient for, even if they are candidates for it, but they were not able to get it in because of the extensive scarring of the visceral peritoneum to the parietal peritoneum. They're stuck together. But those instances are very rare. Chances are with a minimally invasive approach, you'll find some pocket of the pelvic or abdominal peritoneum where you can launch a catheter. And depending on their body size, they may not need much of peritoneal surface to do successful dialysis. If they are average um, body habitus, um, then they don't need much of peritoneal surface. Do you consider obesity a relative contraindication for placement of these catheters, or have you found ways around it? That's again a very relevant and excellent question. Thank you for asking that. Uh, we have seen a growth in peritoneal dialysis to the point where that's no longer a contraindication. We place PD in patients BMI close to 35 or more, close to 40 as well. We just want to make sure that they can access the catheter if they have a big abdominal panis. Then I do a pre-sternal approach and bring the catheter out around the sternum rather than abdominal. So yes, uh, we, don't, we don't turn patients down based on their BMI anymore. So can you walk me through your pre-procedure workup for these patients? So when they are cleared by nephrology and the home program to select them as an appropriate candidate for doing peritoneal dialysis at home, they come with a family member. I do a formal consultation with them. I ultrasound their abdominal wall, make sure even if they have some scars from previous abdominal surgeries, I go over the risk factors and... Uh, you know, the success rate and everything. I do an ultrasound on my consult of the abdominal wall, make sure everything is um, appropriate for a nice, there is no hernia, there is no diathesis of the abdominal wall. And then I 
examine their abdominal wall, make sure I do a cough impulse and make sure there is no hernia that I can detect or any umbilical ventral hernia. If everything turns out okay, then my next step is I discuss their bowel habits and I want to make sure that they are on a regular bowel regimen, especially after placement of the PD catheter to avoid constipation. So we prescribe to their pharmacy a dose of lactulose before appointment date. I usually prescribe about 60 ml of lactulose after a liquid diet the evening before the procedure. I ask them to not eat anything after 8 o'clock or 6, somewhere between supper time. Uh, they have a liquid diet at that point along with the lactulose. And after that, they don't eat overnight. And I usually schedule my PD placements in the morning half of my schedule. So either by 8 o'clock or so, they're on the table to get it done. After they get checked in on the day of the procedure and before I take them back for the procedure, I make sure that their vitals are good. They're the usual pre-procedure check-in. I make sure their blood sugars are okay. If they are slightly hypoglycemic from diabetic uh, state, then I give them dextrose or have them take a little bit of orange juice or something before we take them back. Also, always make sure that the bladder and bowels are empty if they need to use the bathroom before taking them back to the cath lab table. We make sure everything is taken care of before. Any patients with bladder obstruction or chronic prostate issues, I make sure I place a Foley catheter in pre-op to make sure the bladder is completely empty because I want to utilize the pelvic peritoneum space to the maximum available for placing the PD catheter. That's where the PD catheter has to go in. So those are all the pre-procedure. And also one more important thing I forgot to mention was anticoagulation. I usually um, hold Coumadin and Eliquis for about two days prior to the procedure. For Eliquis and Xarelto, there is no checking of any level of INR or anything. But with Coumadin, I usually prefer my INR to be less than 1.5. And uh, no Plavix and aspirin the day before. They have to hold Plavix and aspirin. These are for scheduled PD catheter placements. But for emergent cases, if someone is starting urgently on PD, I'm a little flexible with that. So even if they've taken uh, aspirin or Plavix that day, I'll still do it. And Eliquis maybe, even if they've taken it the night before, I'll sometimes do it. But I'm always using ultrasound also to make sure that the abdominal wall, I'm not close to any major blood vessels, inferior epigastric being the major one. Do you check any labs on the morning of the procedure? I usually have the dialysis unit or the nephrologist give me a set of recent blood work. If they've had any episodes of hospitalization or um, GI bleed or anything, I do check the CBC the day off before the procedure. Uh, any issues with placing these catheters in profoundly hyperkalemic patients? I have not encountered uh, any complications because uh, we are usually not causing any arrhythmia or any wire manipulation to the right atrium. So we are relatively safe in that environment. I've never had any issues with patients starting dialysis and getting that potassium under control. There's also a new medicine that um, if they are 6 and above or 6.5 and above, I give them what's called Lokelma. It's just a powder. It comes in sachets. I keep some in the clinic to give them after the procedure. Oh, okay. 
I'm not familiar with that. That must be an interventional nephrology trick. <laughs> yeah, it's better than uh, KXLate and all. It works really good. And uh, hopefully get them started on PD very soon. With this technique, we don't, we don't have to wait the traditional two weeks to a month for everything to heal. You can start pretty much the next day or overnight for urgent starts. So can we walk through the technique of uh, PD catheter placement? So after we have checked in the patient, they've cleared their bowels and everything. The one thing we want to do, and I forgot to mention earlier, is we want to make sure we measure the belt line and we mark where the patient wears the trousers. And we want to, our incision has to be relative to the pelvic rim. We have to be either above the belt line or below the belt line. So we mark the patient standing and laying down and discuss all the options. Do you want the catheter coming out from the left side if they're leaning more towards uh, sleeping on one side or the other? So we ask all those questions and measure the patient. We empty the bowel bladder before the procedure. We want to make sure they're comfortable. That's when the nurse starts an IV. We start sedation once the patient goes to the cath lab table, is laying supine, and... Um, the IV is for antibiotics. Usually I prefer either an cephalosporin or vancomycin. And uh, I then start sedation with conscious sedation, usually versed and fentanyl or versed and dilaudid, depending on the patient's tolerance level and the hemodynamics. Now we start the abdominal prep. My uh, surgical techs will do a triple prep with iodine, chlorhexidine, and uh, Chlorprep. So the chlorhexidine soap is the first one, especially near the umbilicus. We want to make sure everything is cleaned thoroughly. It's a big infection risk if the prep is not proper. Then iodine followed by chlorprep and um, we let it dry up. Then we put the drape on, surgically complete full body drape, leaving just the abdominal wall exposed. I used to do a iodoform film over the abdominal wall after shaving. If it's a male, um, we take care of the hair, remove um, any debris, skin, thorough cleansing. After that, I used to put the iodoform layer on the abdominal wall, but I've seen that even without that, the results are just as good. The infection rates are relatively low. Our infection rates um, compared to hospital place catheters are relatively about the same or less after a thorough prep. After the prep is completely thorough, no contamination, I want to align the patient's procedure table at a right angle to the patient laying supine. I raise the head end a little bit because once I start injecting contrast, I want everything to gravitate towards the pelvis. So slightly reverse Tendelenburg position. And then at this point, once I have scrubbed in, I start with a 21-gauge Chiba needle without the introducer. I put some markers on the abdominal wall. The equipment that I have to my availability at this point is a C-arm. A mobile C-arm comes in at a right angle from across from me. And then I do a scout x-ray to mark the pelvic rim first. Once I identify the superior surface of the pelvic rim, that's when I, I put a driver next to that, put a mark on the skin surface, is that's where I'm going to start. So that's your access site for uh, the insertion? That's my access site. 
How far away from the spine are you for this? So I'm usually para-umbilical, so I'm to the lateral side of the spine. I'm going through the rectus after skin and fascia. I'm at a 45-degree angle, and I'm facing my target of that needle is pointing towards the mid-pelvis after going through the pelvic rim as an angle. Put some markers on the pelvic rim. I then move the C-arm away a little bit. Now I'm just with ultrasound probe cover and I'm looking at ultrasound in front of me. And that linear probe is being held in my left arm. I'm right-handed and I've got a Chiba needle with a transfer set with an extension cord to my assistant. So as I'm going through and I'm visualizing on ultrasound, layer by layer by layer. So I go from skin, subcutaneous tissue, anterior rectus, sheath, rectus muscle, and I stop over here. So during these layers, my assistant is injecting lidocaine. So at the end of the needle extension cord is a lidocaine syringe. So I want to see every injection of lidocaine with ultrasound um, that I'm going through every layer. So essentially, I'm pushing the layer ahead of me, away from me, with the help of lidocaine. As soon as I get to the rectus muscle and I'm approaching the posterior rectus sheath, I pause. I tell my assistant to switch from lidocaine syringe to a contrast syringe. And it's about a 10 ml contrast syringe he or she switches to. And at this point, the 5 ml of contrast that's in the syringe, half of the syringe length, I have them hold a little negative pressure uh, as if they're aspirating in a closed circuit. Now, this, this step is the most crucial because you're penetrating peritoneum at this stage. So once I advance that needle, that needle goes in with a slight negative pressure with my assisting aspirating the contrast syringe. As soon as I feel the give way sensation and I see it on ultrasound as well, that one millimeter push, I'm into the peritoneum. I ask my assistant to inject contrast, which is usually omnipic or busypic. I inject contrast into the peritoneum and it usually should light up as a spider web dissipation of contrast into the peritoneum. It's the classic spider web dissipation of contrast. If I'm having at any point the contrast injection is localized, it's sitting right next to the needle tip, it means that I'm too superficial and I need to advance a little bit more. So once I get to the peritoneal space, then it's home run from there. Then I take the extension cord off. My needle is now going to advance the micropuncture ovonate wire, whatever ovonate wire you have. It comes with the pack. The micropuncture kit has a tungsten wire. It goes in. I advance the wire across the needle. Now I bring the C-arm in. I'm looking fluoroscopically as to where my wire is going. Let's back up for one more second. You've described to me two fluoroscopic options for what you see after you put the needle in and you think you're in the right spot. Number one, the correct option is that you see the spiderweb appearance. That means that you're intraperitoneal. Okay. Uh, number two is you just see localized blob of contrast. That means you're too superficial. I have encountered also number three. I think you and I did this on a case together, uh, which was an, a mental puncture. So can you describe to me what that looks like and then how you troubleshoot from there? 
that almost gives you the appearance of the outside shape of the small bowel, not intra bowel, obviously not that far in, but it gives that outside shadow of the small bowel surrounding it. So then you, your next step should be you pull back a little. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to reinsert your needle or anything. You pull back and probably change the angle a little bit, twist it a little bit, and inject contrast. You should still be able to get contrast dissipation, the spider web appearance from there. Any other uh, possible patterns you'll see on the injection that I haven't encountered that you, maybe you've encountered? A great question. Let's say the patient has ascites. So with ascites or with any fluid collection within the peritoneal space, the contrast dissipation is not classic. It almost looks like the contrast you're injecting just washes out diffusely. And that could be another outcome. And of course, um, if you are too deep, if you are too fast in going through these layers and you accidentally perf bowel, don't be scared. And I always tell them that with a 21-gauge needle, you cannot do significant damage. As long as when you inject contrast and lights up like, let's say, small bowel and everything, you make sure the patient is doing good. You uh, will pull out the needle. You will completely discard that needle at that point if you did go that deep and then switch to another location with a new needle to go back in. Never has it been a problematic perf. You just make sure that, you know, you don't dilate that space to a five French or bigger. All right. So now we're to the point where the wire is in. Um, you, you just have any kind of 018 stainless steel wire down into the pelvis. I've occasionally, if it's a thick abdominal wall at that stage, I could switch to a longer 018 glide wire because the needle length and the wire length you have to match so that when you pull the needle out, you still have enough wire in. So depending on that, you use the kind of 018 wire. Now your needle comes out, wire stays, and you go in with the 5 French. And if I'm not sure, going back to that stage where you're not sure where you are, let's say, and your wire is going in perfectly fine, I can even use the smaller, the inner cannula of the micropuncture. It's a 3 French or a 2.5 French. Then you inject contrast through that. You pull the wire out, you've uh, advanced the 3 French in. And then you inject contrast through there to be 100% sure. At every stage, if you're not sure, you just keep doing this at every stage of dilation. You make sure you inject contrast. You're staying in the same space. Now, from here onwards, it's just serial advancement of the sheath and the wire. So what's your, what's your working wire that you like to work over for when you're doing everything here? I love the stiff hydrophilic glide wire. Hydrophilic 035 stiff glide. Okay, so then you got your stiff glide in, um, and then do you move to dilators? At this stage, I'm checking where my wire is going. If the wire takes the classic loop around the pelvis, then I know it's, it's perfect. I don't have to visualize with contrast anymore. Now my job is to make sure that the dilation of that track that I've gone in into the pelvis is a straight track and the wire is not kinked or hung over at any point. It's going straight across into that. I do make a small incision at this stage on both sides of the wire to let a intermediate dilator come in next, which is usually a 9 French or a 10 French. You can even use a sheath at this stage because you can then have the advantage of injecting contrast through the side port 
And then after confirming everything and keeping the O35 stiff glide, the last dilator is my 18 French peel away sheath. Some of the packs come with a pre-dilator, but the Medtronic 62.5 is my standard catheter that I use. And it has two cuffs. It comes with a 16 French dilator. I personally have found that 18 French dilation is the best. I've removed the introducer under fluoroscopic guidance, staying live. I advanced the peel away sheath, removed the introducer, kept the wire. And now I irrigate the pelvic peritoneum with saline, again confirmed with contrast. And then I slide my swan neck 62.5 or 59 Medtronic um, silicon rubber catheter over the wire into the pelvis. This brings us to a really good point because this is where I think the procedure differs a little bit from kind of our standard uh, plurex peritoneal catheter placement that a lot of interventional radiologists are familiar with. And the main reason for that is because this PD catheter has a swan neck so that the hub of the catheter can come down and the patient can access it. So could you talk to me a little bit about the intricacies of placing this double-cuffed peritoneal dialysis catheter in? So like you said, um, it's different from a Plurex or a Aspira drain or anything like that. It's got the same kind of cuff, but of the two cuffs that the swan neck catheter has, one is the deep cuff, which is closer to the pigtail um, curl cuff of the catheter. Once we have advanced and dilated our track, we are sliding this catheter through the peel-away sheath. As I'm peeling the peel-away, I'm having my assistant advance that deep cuff. That deep cuff has to be either on the rectus muscle or in the rectus muscle. So our job is to advance that forcefully over the wire as we are peeling the peel-away into the rectus muscle. And that's why the 18 French, because it allows for the separation of the layers so that the deep cuff goes in. As soon as my deep cuff is in, I'm confirming the function of the catheter with saline, up to 300 or 500 of saline I insert into the pelvic peritoneum and see how it drains. If I have good flow, my landing of the curl cuff is mid-pelvis and the patient is not wincing or having any symptoms. Now my next job is to make sure the swan neck hangs over the rectus muscle going into the super. Now we are going from deep to superficial. So our next step is to create a tunnel and exit site. I take a small uh, 15 blade and make a small incision after lidocaine infiltration into the exit site that I'm planning. I place the catheter on the abdominal wall to see what's the natural curve of that catheter coming out and then I plan my exit side about two inches away from the superficial cuff. And then I do a retrograde tunneling with a faller tunneler that I advance from the exit side into the insertion site that I've dilated. And then I, I attach the catheter to the faller tunneler and I pull back. Tunneler slash trocar. And then I pull that out. Never going with the sharp edge of the tunneler through the abdominal wall, because that can give rise to bleeding and oozing. Yes. And one of the things I know you take a lot of uh, pride in your catheters is that they have almost no bleeding associated with them. You keep your incisions small. Um, you make sure your dressings are really clean. Could I go back to one question for one thing? 
how do you know that that deep cuff is in the rectus muscle? Do you do it under imaging? Can you see it superficially while you have your peel away sheath in? Or can you feel it when you're pulling? That's a great question. I think ultrasound is still available on your table. Uh, I the, use the ultrasound to make sure my deep cuff is either on the rectus or in the rectus muscle. It has definitely advanced past the anterior rectus sheath. Even if it does not, no big deal. It's deep enough that it's it's deeper than the superficial cuff at least. So it doesn't always have to be that it has to be completely midway in the rectus muscle uh, with this technique. As long as it's preventing any leak from happening when you inject um, saline, you also want to make sure that at your insertion site there is no leak happening. And your suture on that deep cuff is a nice tight burst ring around it so that it traps that deep cuff with Vicryl is what I use. So I use ultrasound to confirm where the deep cuff is. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I think uh, where we left off was you did your tunnel. Uh, you pulled your catheter through the tunnel. One thing I want to point out that you taught me is uh, that you don't like to use the tunneler that comes with the kit, correct? Correct. Uh, I use a, a separately autoclavable Fowler titanium steel tunneler. Tunneler slash trocar. Yeah. That's my go-to tunneler. I use the blunt end of that tunneler to go through in a retrograde fashion rather than the, the sharp edge once I created my exit site. I've opened up that exit site with a mosquito and uh, made a perfectly nice fit in relation to the catheter. Usually there shouldn't be, if you are nice and gentle, there shouldn't be any uh, blood vessels, but you can always use your ultrasound close to the vicinity of your exit site to make sure that you won't be going through any vein or artery close by to make sure that it's not a risk for bleeding. As you pull your catheter out from the exit side, I usually have a non-traumatic clamp holding the swan neck portion of the catheter so that my deep cuff doesn't slide out from the rectus. So that's another trick to kind of make sure that you don't lose your anchor of that deep cuff in the muscle. So the deep cuff gets a purse string suture. Purse string suture. And then a running vicryl followed by running monocryl on your small incision. On your incision at the insertion site. Okay. And then do you do anything to tie the catheter down? Um, like some people will do a Roman sandal silk suture. No, I just leave it. I let, let the uh, scarring of the Dacron mesh material of the cuff happen so that I don't leave any because removal of these catheters are something that you would have to get used to. With this very non-invasive kind of uh, superficial technique, you don't have to dig too far into the muscle to separate the cuff. Once it's implanted and you have to remove it years later, it's not a very big procedure. Got it. Okay, well, that sounds like basically the procedure in nitty-gritty detail from start to finish. Am I forgetting anything about how we do it? So at this stage, once I've uh, pulled out my exit site, pulled out my catheter through the exit site, and my superficial cuff is in the subcutaneous fascia, I again confirm everything with contrast injection. I want to make sure I haven't moved from the mid-pelvic pouch of Douglas landing into the mid-pelvis of the curl cuff. Uh, the curve of the swan neck from the deep cuff to the superficial cuff is a nice, smooth curve. To ensure the smoothness of this angle, I advance my glide 
wire back again while I'm suturing. That's a little trick. I always feel better when I'm suturing over the catheter with the wire still in there because it doesn't change the position of my deep cuff. I don't advance that wire all the way to the pelvis, but it's halfway somewhere in the track. Okay, just to keep that lumen open. And I'm always uh, having a facing down catheter exit so that down the road, patient takes a shower and everything, all the water goes down So instead of facing the water jet. Okay. And then after the catheter is in, as I recall, you infuse antibiotics into the peritoneal dialysis catheter, correct? What's your cocktail of choice? I usually use gram-positive coverage with vancomycin if patient has no allergies and the gram-negative coverage with either cefepime or gentamicin for intraperitoneal irrigation of that. I don't put the patient on any PO antibiotics afterwards. If I'm doing intraperitoneal antibiotics on the day of the procedure, then I don't put them on any oral antibiotics because they can develop diarrhea, C. diff, and they can also have remaining effects from the lactulose that was given the night before. So the best is to just leave them antibiotic-free. And uh, I've seen that the infection rates are really, really low with instilling intraperitoneal antibiotics versus oral. Uh, how long do you keep these patients for recovery after the procedure? Usually a couple of hours and they're ready to go once they wake up. And I also encourage them if they have any sensation to use the bathroom afterwards to do that so that we want to make sure everything goes well with the patient before they're discharged. I also make sure that I examine the dressing at the time of discharge, make sure that there is no soakage of blood or fluid around the exit site. One thing I did not mention is I put some pressure on the abdominal wall once I'm finishing off. If I notice that there is any ooze or any bleeding happening from the exit site, best is to, I know I do promote um, sutureless exit site, but if the patient is having oozing or bleeding, I do put a purse string monocryl around it and bring them back sooner within a week to make sure that that suture is taken out because otherwise it'll cause inflammation at the exit site and redness. So I always want to make sure that the exit site is not bleeding, preferably suture-free, and the dressing is not soaked in anything before they are discharged. And there's gentamicin at the exit site and a gauze that covers up. Everything is packed, and the instructions to the patient is not to get it wet until they come back in a couple of weeks or dressing change. So that brings us to uh, your post-procedure uh, follow-up. When do you see these patients back in your clinic? I see them at one week and two week. One week is just for them to come in, dressing change, and uh, just overall how they're doing, how they're feeling. Um, do they need to start dialysis sooner? I don't peel any of the derma bond from the incision line or do anything unless I have had an exit site suture that would be the time to remove it at week one. And then week two is again another dressing change, making sure everything is okay. By this point, the patient has seen the um, dialysis nurse at the training center, and they've put a transfer set to the outside external portion of the cath. Because we don't discharge them with a transfer set. Um, that's another probably 10 inches long catheter tubing that they have to be with. 
And that's what the PD nurses uh, set up for them. Okay. If for whatever reason between one and week two, I'm noticing any blood in the tubing that happened after the procedure, patients can have bleeding after the procedure. If that blood makes its way into the tubing of the catheter, I make sure that under super sterile precautions, I flush it out. And I want to see what kind of exchange I'm getting. Is the blood going away? Is it becoming less and less prominent as the exchanges happen? Then I'm safe. If for whatever reason it does not seem to clear up, best is to bring the patient back and keep doing flushes and make sure the hemoglobin is stable in the patient and hemodynamically the patient is stable in Where do you see operators run into trouble with this minimally invasive technique and with management of these PD catheters? The problems uh, would arise not at the time of, because it's a very minimally invasive procedure. So I've never encountered deep or organ kind of damage or any perf or anything with this technique. However, the risk of catheter tip migration happens after the patient has started dialysis or what have you, if the catheter migrates out of the pelvis, then is there an indication to bring the patient back and do a manipulation of the catheter back into the pelvis with a wire or reinsert the catheter back into the pelvis with a new incision, new placement. I think that's kind of one of the differences between this technique versus when they place it surgically, right? Is because when they place it surgically, they put a stitch in in the pelvis to keep it down there to make sure the catheter doesn't migrate away. And we don't, we don't have that. I've had catheters migrate out even if they've put a stitch in the omentum. Even if they've tucked it into the deep pelvis, its chances of migration has nothing to do with that. The thing is uh, that uh, the insertion into the peritoneum through the rectus muscle is the key. If there was any problem getting into the peritoneum through the rectus muscle on your first setting, then chances are that the catheter would migrate out. If your transition was smooth and it's the right size catheter, then it won't, or chances are less of it migrating out. Leaving too much redundant catheter length in the pelvis is another recipe for the catheter to migrate out. So the less catheter length you put in the pelvic peritoneum, then chances are less of migration. Any other tips or tricks you'd like to share for uh, folks who want to start this in their practice? Making sure that the patient stays constipation-free, that doesn't let the bowel push the catheter out of the pelvis. That's another key thing. You can triage things like, let's say, exit site infection, abscess in the tract, or in cellulitis. So all those we would treat just like we would with a hemocatheter kind of approach. We put them on antibiotics and culture what's coming out and either do a repair of that catheter without taking them off of peritoneal dialysis. There are very ways to triage those uh, tract infections, kink in the catheter, exit site abscess or infection. You can choose a new tract, new exit site, connect the deeper portion of the catheter with a new superficial portion of the catheter using a titanium connector. Those kind of things you can do to preserve patient on PD. Well, cool. Awesome. Yeah. And then anything different in removing these catheters as compared to a Plurex catheter or, or um, an Espira catheter? That's a great question. The, the removal of a PD catheter can sometimes take longer than placement time. You have to have 
electrocautery bovie on the plug-in bovie, not the mobile bovie, so that your incision is nice and clean and you dissect down to make sure you're uh, blood-free or, you know, any bleeders you can cauterize along the way. And then you get to the deep cuff. At the time of deep cuff uh, removal, my trick is if it's a surgically placed deep catheter, I always have a wire across the catheter and I have a six millimeter balloon anchoring that catheter down because the catheter silicon rubber is very breakable if you're pulling hard. But the scar tissue is very dense around the deep cuff. So I always have that as an insurance policy of not losing or ripping the whole catheter is have something in there to kind of hold it firmly as you're dissecting around the deep cuff. Okay, and then once you have it free, you just take the whole thing out with the balloon inflated and everything. If my deep cuff is now free, I don't just pull out the catheter. I want to make sure I have two layers of vicryl around the catheter, around the silicon rubber catheter that I'm visualizing before I pull it out. And as I pull out, I close those sutures, the purse strings across the catheter so that it's a tight fit and I don't leave a peritoneal hole. Okay, yeah, no, that's definitely different than how I take out Plurex catheters. So that's good to know, but just, I guess, because that deep cuff is in the muscle, so it's not going to, you don't want to make a hole. Plus, the patient has formed scar tissue and that hole, it has formed a biofilm literally around it going in. So it would be an easy target for a leak if you don't suture deep. I usually use a zero vicryl with a big hook, kind of goes around and I do two, three layers of that before I switch to monocryl for the superficial layer. And my incision on that deep cuff is a little bit wider, a little bit bigger when I'm removing the catheter so that I have enough anchorage across. Awesome. Very useful tricks. There's a lot of places we can go wrong with this. And if we start placing them and don't do a good job, you know, then our referrers aren't going to be happy with us. So it's helpful to get the perspective of somebody who's placed hundreds of these. Any parting words to our audience that you'd like them to know about placement of these catheters? So uh, I didn't mention the closure of the incision line. I usually prefer a running subdermal monocryl below my derma bond closure. So I don't like leaving any stitches sticking out from the skin so that they don't have to come back for suture removal. So that gives rise to a very clean incision. And the smaller your incision is, less risk of any leaks or bleeding, but infection risk is mitigated or lowered by intraperitoneal antibiotics and um, good prep. I cannot emphasize enough on the peri-umbilical area being cleaned thoroughly and making sure you plan your exit site with a perfect size uh, incision to make sure that there is no exit side sutures. And if you have to place an exit side suture, it would be best that you personally remove it before handing over to the dialysis unit. It's all about presentation, right? You want to give them the most beautiful catheter um, so that they, <laughs> they're, they're not privy to all of the fluoroscopic and ultrasound guided procedure part. They just see what happens at the end. And if they see blood in that catheter or if they see a dirty dressing or something, then uh, you're going to lose the confidence of your referrers. You're absolutely correct. You cannot emphasize that enough to keep it clean and dry, just like your hemocatheters. And bringing peritoneal access to your uh, practice 
helps open up all the avenues of dialysis access care that you can provide to your renal failure patients and community. Because let's say you were doing hemocatheter for the patient, talk to them about PD at that time at your initial discussion and vice versa. Talk to them about hemo options if PD goes wrong while you're placing the PD catheter so that you complete the loop of whatever access maintenance you have to do with the patient. And so this, I think, kind of covers 360 degrees of the complete dialysis access care for patients on dialysis. I've had uh, several patients come back from chronic outpatient dialysis to get a PD catheter and no longer are going back into a hemodialysis unit. I've had patients post-transplant failure, let's say, have had urgent starts on PD, PD being switched after hemo start, all sorts of configurations. So it doesn't have to be that you start with PD. PD can always happen maybe months into dialysis or later on. Awesome. Dr. Banerjee, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Good luck with your practice. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. <laughs>